Amen. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you out. I, I just feel like people are just still waking up. I mean, it is like 1030. So like, let's, if, if you, this is your normal get up time, I envy you. Uh, <laughs> I don't usually have that option. I notice, you know, it's like, okay, so, so 10 becomes 11 and like the other day it was 40 degrees and then this morning I get in my car and it's five degrees. So it's Idaho. Yeah. I, I find just being somebody who comes from, you know, a different area, when I got to New England, I explained to him, I said, you know, y'all, whenever you start a conversation with somebody, y'all start with a complaint, right? Nobody says y'all. But I said, you start with a complaint. And what do you mean? And I said, is this line longer? Hey, you know, they get any colder? And then they come back, and, you know, you're right. I never noticed that. So I noticed when I came to Idaho Falls, kind of like your Stockholm Syndrome victims to the winter. Because how do you deal with the winter? Well, the, the, it, it's nice to us in summer, right? So, <laughs> so yeah, so, uh, so there's that. I want to thank the guys who, especially Daniel. Daniel, I, you know, as soon as this thing came in, I got sick, and then I got a sinus infection. Uh, Daniel basically did most of this. Um, you know, I, I told somebody today, he said, it looks great, and I said, I take full credit, of course. Um, <laughs> I said, it was literally, it was literally Pastor Jay's idea. Daniel submitted it. The board voted on it. Um, but, and I didn't have anything to do with putting it together. But I take full credit, of course. Um, but also, there's so many little things that you don't see. Uh, the, the rest of the lighting is in and throughout the building. Uh, I know the guys were doing the fix of the water heater yesterday. There's been painting, ceiling tiles. And so thank you uh, to all of you guys. Uh, Daniel, Mark, Chris... Don, Heath, everybody who's helped with all the projects uh, the last few weeks. Amen. And I, I, I know we've had a couple of, of significant gifts for, for things like the screen, but also the parking lot and things in the last uh, year or so uh, and even more. But uh, I was told last week we had the highest single week of giving in our church's history. Uh, so I want to, yeah, go ahead. Give the Lord praise. I just so appreciate those of you who have caught the vision of reaching this harvest field for Christ and it just said, you know what, I'm in, I'm in, and, uh, and I'm invested in what God is doing through the Bridge Church. All right, so I want us to go ahead and look at, at a couple of passages. So if you want to turn to Luke chapter 9, I also want to look at the parallel passage in Matthew 18. It's the same story, but there's some details, obviously different artists. You know, God picks up a brush. It's not like God dictated scripture. He used uh, different, different individuals, kind of like an artist selects a brush. I noticed, for example, in Mark, who's all about action, right? I mean, he's a Roman audience. And I think Mark uses the word immediately like 12 times in chapter 1. Like immediately Jesus did this lot of action in, in Mark's words. And so when Mark tells the story of the woman with the issue of blood, he says uh, she had suffered much under the care of many physicians. When Luke tells it, well, what was Luke? Luke was a physician. And so Luke says, you know, many physicians have tried to help her, but none were able. It's, it's true. They're both true, but it's different perspectives. And so I want to do that today, kind of look at uh, Matthew and Luke's perspective, this, this physician. But Matthew uh, is probably the most Jewish of all the writers, and he's focused on prophecy uh, and the fulfillment of it. So let's take a look together at, at, at Luke 9, beginning in verse 57. The Bible says, as they were walking along the road, a man said to him, to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. 
He said to another man, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, um, we don't want to just be taught. Father, we want to become teachers. We want to become communicators. We want to become pipelines and conduits of your word to this dark and dying generation. I pray, Father God, that you would open our eyes uh, and reveal more of yourself to us. Father, through your word and by your spirit. And Father God, use us as we leave this place to bring glory to your name and to bring communication of who Jesus really is in a greater sense to a greater level and at a greater depth than we ever had before. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Um, C.S. Lewis said this. He said, I, he was an atheist, by the way. He was a, one of the most brilliant minds of the 20th century. He was a, a, a chair of a department at, at Oxford. And, and when he came to Christ, he said this. He said, I didn't go to religion to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port would do that. If you want religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. <laughs> so if you're looking to be made comfortable in your present condition, you walk through the wrong door. But if you're looking to be made new, whole, and alive beyond anything this world has to offer, you're in exactly the right place. Jesus looked at a future that we couldn't see. He looked at eternity and the way we would experience it, separated from everything good. Separated from everything that is loving, separating from all light, separating from all pleasure. And he looked at that and he couldn't countenance it. And he came to this earth to not only save us, but to also teach us so that we could become vessels in the hands of the Lord to reach other people. Now, the thing that, that, that we have to recognize is becoming that is not going to be comfortable. And becoming that is going to mean saying no to the flesh often and regularly. That's why Jesus said you have to take up your cross, what? Daily. Not weekly, not monthly. You have to take up your cross daily and follow me. Because the flesh is always going to be an ever-present adversary that wars against what God wants to do in us. And in this passage here in Luke 9 and in this parallel passage in Matthew 8, we see these indicators of what the flesh will do and how it seeks to obstruct us. And that's really what I want to talk about today is these three individuals. Now, like I said, the same narrative is is given in Matthew 8. We're going to be comparing the two for depth. But we talk about this first man. And and like I said, I'll give you a minute if you want to keep your finger in Matthew. But Matthew includes some interesting details in his rendering of the story that are not contained in Luke chapter 9. First of all, Uh, Matthew tells us that the man was a teacher of the law. Now, the word that is used in Matthew 8 is grammateus, which which means a man of letters, a legal scribe, where the man, in in, in English, and it exposes the limitations of English, also calls Jesus teacher. I know maybe some of your translations translate it rabboni or master. And the reason is it's a different word. The man addresses Jesus as didaskalos, which infers Jesus's superior position. Now the second man, and this is a great example of why we need to study multiple accounts of the same event. Um, In the the second man, Jesus says, follow me, follow me. Now what's interesting about this is that these are the same words that Jesus used to call the 12. It's the same words that Jesus used to call the 12. He said, follow me. It's also the words that he used, the word that he used to cause, to call the rich young ruler. 
Sell all that you have, give to the poor, and follow me. Many times, Jesus would simply listen to people, teach them, and move on. But there were times when he would select a certain individual, point at him and look him in the eye and say, follow me. And this was an example of that. When Jesus would specifically call an individual, there was an implication of a very specific purpose behind that call. Again, think of the rich young ruler. He comes to Jesus, and Jesus responds that for him, the path to eternal life, which has always been predicated on obedience to God, was for him, sell your goods and give to the poor and follow me. Now, the third man is noteworthy because Jesus, or Matthew, does not mention him at all. He's not a socially prominent figure like the first, nor does there seem to be a direct call from Jesus as the second man received. He appears in the midst of this conversation Jesus seems to be having with these individuals, and he just kind of injects himself into, inserts himself in the conversation and says, I'll follow you, Lord. I'll follow you, Lord. He appears to seek to offer to follow Jesus with only the reasonable request of just let me say goodbye to my own family. And Jesus replies with something interesting because, and we're going to talk about this, when you see the call of Elisha, Elijah goes up to Elisha, puts his mantle on him, which by the way was the only thing remaining of Elijah when Elijah was taken up to heaven was what, his mantle. So we talk about taking up the mantle. Um, and Elisha says to him, let me go say goodbye to my family. And Elijah lets him. So this would seem perfectly reasonable, and yet Jesus says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Now, interestingly, what was Elisha doing when he was called? He was plowing with his oxen. He was plowing with his oxen. It's, Jesus is not saying Elisha is not fit for service, but what he's saying is that there is an elevated call. There is a heightened level of importance, even greater than the call of Elijah to Elisha that Jesus is giving to these individuals. And Jesus appears to answer in a way that seems harsh to our modern ears for two reasons. Number one, because we've conditioned ourselves to only receive truth that is presented to us in a means and manner we deem acceptable and which shows to us what we believe to be the proper respect. How many commercials do you see every day that say, you deserve this? You deserve this. Condition yourself to ask why. Why do I deserve this? Why does every... I love when it says everybody deserves good health care. Really? Serial killers? Who deserve good, I, mean, every, I mean, everybody's a big word, right? People who are out torturing little kittens deserve this good, you know. That, why, why do I deserve this? They're not saying you actually deserve this. They're playing upon your ego. And Jesus never did that. Jesus never did that. He, he delivers this, this thing that we would seem... To, to receive as very, very harsh. So with that in mind, what I want to do is travel back a couple thousand years and put ourselves in that situation and try to see what's really going on. I want to talk about these three roadblocks because in each of these cases, this implication of following Jesus is on the table or a direct statement. And each of these in, in, individuals had something in their lives that precluded them from having the ability to follow Jesus. The first is in verse 57 and 58, and that is the wherever. Look at, look at these verses. As they were walking along, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. 
Now, I'm, I'm assuming, because, again, when you look at the, the different descriptions in the two different passages, it seems to be an ongoing, relaxed conversation. I doubt the man just walked up to Jesus, tapped him on the shoulder, I'll follow you wherever you go. It was, there was probably an ongoing conversation about following him. And this man makes this statement, a grand statement, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replies by saying, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. In other words, are you willing to be homeless to follow me? Too many people come to Jesus based on what he is willing to do for them without any serious reflection of what might be required of them. And the way Jesus answers this conditional admirer in Luke 9 reveals some of the reasons it's risky to tell Jesus wherever if you don't really mean it. Because our wherevers usually have limitations like fear, like being sensible. Understand something, as Christians, we are eternal creatures. We are eternal creatures. Eternal life does not begin for you when you take your last breath. Eternal life began when you were born again and you were given new life. And whether it's being conditioned to help the poor or somebody hurting or avoiding an affair or getting out of your seat and coming to the altar when the Spirit speaks to you or simply not littering, the purpose of discipleship is continually causing you to move more and more towards being habitually Spirit-led. Let me say that again. The purpose of discipleship is to continually cause you to move more and more towards being habitually Spirit-led. That's why when somebody makes this excuse of, well, my sin isn't that bad, right? I mean, compared to so-and-so, I'm not that bad. When, when somebody says, well, hey, I was, this is just the way I am. I was born that way. My dad was this way, and I'm... All of those excuses go out the window. Because I always ask them, <clears throat> does that exist in a perfected universe? Does that behavior exist in the coming kingdom? Well, well, no. Well, see, here's the problem. Will there be littering in the new earth? No. Why? Because the Bible tells us that the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth even as the waters cover the sea. In other words, the people of that kingdom instinctively, not out of fear or punishment, but reflexively, kind of like you go to a doctor, he taps your knee and, you know, you do that. It's a reflex. You don't think about, oh, he's hitting my knee, I have to do that. He's checking your reflexes. Reflexively, instinctively, we will behave in a manner that is consistent with the heart and the purposes of God. Because the knowledge of the Lord will be instinctive to all of us. So Christian discipleship is the beginning of that process where we ready ourselves, where we learn to be led by the Spirit of God. And that process will take us far beyond our present ability. Imagine you're going out for track, but you're not very good at it. You're not very coordinated, <clears throat> but you want to become better at it. So you go to the, you go to the coach... And you're out on the track and you notice that the hurdles are this high. And you say, I can't jump that. And so you say to the coach, I'll go out for track as long as the hurdle is only this high. He's going to tell you no. If you tell him, I will run and jump, but I will only jump this high, he's going to say, then leave. Because my purpose as a coach is to get you to do what you can't presently do. If you go study martial arts or you go study music, you certainly don't tell them, you know what, my, my ability is here, so I can see myself maybe getting here, but don't ask me to go here. He's going to say, go home. Because you haven't got 
the attitude and the mindset of, of just yielding yourself to the process of becoming what you say you want to be. Hello. Many of us as Christians are telling God, I'll jump this high, but don't ask me to jump this high. And Jesus is having no part of that. And that's why he's telling these individuals what he's telling them. Because if we say no at the beginning of the process, we can't continue on into the heart of it. So let me ask you right here, how do you know you're where you're supposed to be? I know I'm where I'm supposed to be. If somebody asks me, uh, and, and I, I got into a conversation with you. I think we were doing rent, drum renders one night in a studio. And the engineer is Christian Brother. I've known him for 20 years, and he's worked with many, many uh, well-known artists. And he's got a studio just outside of Boston. And he and I were talking as Christians as we're waiting for the computer to does what it, you know, do what it does. Um, how do you know you're where God wants you? And he asked me that question. How do you know you're supposed to be pastoring? How do you know that you're not supposed to be a street preacher? How do you know you're not supposed to be a missionary? And I tell him, you know, look, number one, the steps of the righteous are ordered by the Lord. But I have watched God close so many doors. I really thought that I was going to be in another church before I came here. I re everything seemed to be aligned. It seemed to be perfectly working out. And then the door seemed to open again. And I was like, okay, so God, you're definitely... But here's what I do. After I've prayed, after I've sought the Lord, after I've come to the best conclusion and decision I can come to, I bring that to him and say, God, according to all the knowledge and ability I have, this is your will for me. But if this is not, close the door. And I have seen him do that over and over and over again. God wants to lead us, but we have to be willing to listen to his spirit. See, the secret is to be willing to be led wherever because the spirit of God will only lead you in the will of God. People will say things like, well, why would you come to Idaho Falls, right? Well, I mean, why not go here or why not go there? The, the, to me, it's a foreign statement. I went where the Lord told me to go. It's very simple. This is where God directed my path. When I look at my marriage, my wife is my assignment. She is assigned to me by God. There, once, once I came to Jesus, I laid my right to do what I want. Now, there's certain things. God didn't tell me what shirt to wear. And he didn't tell me to have raisin bran for breakfast or anything like that. There's a lot of things that he's going to leave in your hands. The question is, what if he doesn't? What if he says, do this and not that? Wear this and not that? What if God simply intrudes on your day and says, how sensitive, how reflexively are you able to simply move in the will of God? See, Jesus is forcing this man to confront two truths. Number one, God will often lead you to places you don't want to go. If you actually courageously say to Jesus, where do you want me today? Right? Assign me situations or people to bring Jesus to. He's going to lead you. The first thing in your head is, okay, I want you to go talk to him. Okay, Lord, I was thinking of somebody more along the line, right? We, we immediately start then telling, how reflexively do I obey? The second truth is, God will lead you in places your flesh doesn't desire. And Jesus is confronting him on his willingness to be spirit-led. See, oftentimes we will get into an intellectual dis debate with God. But God, doesn't this make more sense? 
right? And sometimes we get in. See, we're, we're made to be tripartite beings. Spirit, soul, and flesh. And so, you know, when you're out in the middle of the ocean and you're drowning, you don't need to intellectually think through that. Paddle or die, right? Your, your, your body just takes over. When, when, you're, when you're dealing with a, a, a mathematical problem, your intellect takes over. But what God is trying to teach us is to be led by the Spirit within us, that He birthed within us. And so He immediately says to this man, are you willing to go anywhere? I don't have a home. Are you willing to follow me outside of your comfort zone? The second man represents the wherever. Verse 59, he said to another man, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go proclaim the kingdom of God. Now this, this, is, um, this seems really harsh because we're picturing a corpse laying around that needs to get into the ground. That's not what this statement means. What this statement means is I need to tie up the loose ends. My father is elderly, he's aged, he's about to die. I would probably presume that since he is saying, let me bury my father, he's either an only son or a firstborn son. Now, the way things would work in Jewish society at that time is let's say you had four sons. You would divide your inheritance five ways. And the eldest son would get what is called the double portion. He would get two of them because he would now become the president of the company. He would become, the, you know, he would lead the farm, whatever. He would step into his father's role in the community. Which is why when you look at the story of the prodigal son, the people hearing Jesus talk about that, they would have been horrified about this young man taking his living and, and squandering it on prostitutes and wild living. Why? Because he wasn't just taking his money. He was taking money away from the community. Because wealthy people often served as benefactors. Jesus even said, don't, you know, the, the rich people, they call themselves benefactors. You look at yourself as a servant. But they would see themselves, they would build the, 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 the civic centers and they would build the, 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 the public works and things like that. And in the Roman culture, they'd build amphitheaters or whatnot. Oftentimes, if you were wealthy and you had a lot of men working for you, you'd actually serve as a police force for the community. We see this in the story of David and Abigail, <clears throat> where David serves as the police force. His 600 men guard the, 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 the flocks and the shepherds that belonged to Nabal. And so David reasonably asks for just some food for Christmas, you know, basically. And he gets turned away and he gets infuriated. And so here's this man making this seemingly reasonable request. I'm an eldest son or an oldest son. Let me go and tie up some loose threads. Let me take care of the, the family business and then I'll follow you anywhere. Look at Luke 14, 16 with me. Jesus is speaking and he tells a story. He says, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. The time of the banquet, he sent his servants to tell, servant to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make what? Excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field and I must go and see it. If you buy real estate without seeing it, come see me after service. I will sell you. You don't need to see it. You just give me the money and trust me. Um, and I'll sell you some great real estate. Um, another said, I just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Again, really? Really? You buy a car from a vending machine? Do you do, I mean, do you, you don't try it out? Ever buy a used car 
and it looks great in the pictures, and then you get in it, and something rattles, or something ain't working right, right? So I, I, I've just, I just bought five yokes of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, and this is legitimate under Jewish law. You would be exempt from military service. Just got married, so I can't come. Servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there's still room. Then the master told his servants, servant, go out into the roads and country lanes and make them come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who are invited will get a taste of my banquet. We have to get rid of our excuses if we want to sit down at the feast of God. See, there are a lot of church-going admirers who feel okay about a half-hearted relationship with Jesus. Some of you men are coming because your wife comes to church. Some of you wives are coming because your husband comes to church. Some of you young people are coming because mom and dad come to church. Uh, I was asked the other week about, we're, we're doing a baptism in a couple weeks. Most of the baptisms I've done have probably been rebaptism, probably at least half. Because people will say, I didn't know what I was doing. And so somebody will come up and say, well, you baptized my child, and they're very young. And, and I try to tell them, this, this has nothing to do with your child, and I'm sure your child loves Jesus very much, and this, this is not any kind of judgment or indicator against your child. I just don't usually do that, and here's the reason. Because number one, the Bible says that the child is sanctified through a believing parent. So if even only one parent is, is saved in the household, the child is sanctified through that parent. And so I tend not to want to do a baptism until that child reaches the age of accountability, where they are spiritually accountable before God for their own activity. But the bigger thing is this, and I'm not sure you can ever comprehend this at five, six, or eight years old. I certainly didn't as a baby being baptized Catholic. The bigger issue is, are you really understanding what it means? Because when I put you in the water, that means that you have died to your life. You have died. This is not, I have my rights. Dead person doesn't have any rights. You can leave a will, but if the judge says it's going somewhere else, it's going somewhere else. You don't get to stand up. You probably wish you could. You don't get to stand up and say, I object. It's not yours anymore. You have died, and you have no more claim to that. When you come out of the water, you are testifying publicly that I will now live my life for Jesus Christ. Every breath that I take from this point on, every day that I live, I live for Jesus Christ. See, modern Jesus, if this man comes up and says, hey, you know, um, let me go first bury my father. Modern Jesus says, hey, no pressure at all. Um, I'll be here when you're ready. Right? The real Jesus responds in maybe the harshest way possible, guaranteed to both communicate how he feels as well as the gravity of the situation. I knew of an evangelist. He's preaching a series of meetings at a church, and a young man came up to him and said, you know, I really felt God calling me, but... You know, I have a lot of things I want to do in my life, and someday I'll give my life to Jesus. But, and the evangelist encouraged him and exhorted him, if God is calling you today, give your life to Jesus Christ. Well, that young man left the meeting, got on his motorcycle, got into a crash, and died instantly. And they asked the evangelist to preach the funeral. You know what the first thing he said? He pointed to the casket and said, this young man is probably in hell. I'm nobody's judge. Imagine saying that in front of a family. Number one, be careful if you ask an evangelist to preach a funeral. Right? But he was right. And he was very, very aware at that moment, probably terrified, that somebody in the audience didn't have tomorrow either. And he was more concerned about that person going into eternity 
what might I have said to this young man in this casket if I knew he was not going to be on this earth tomorrow? How passionately might I have preached to him? I might have preached with tears in my eyes. I might have begged him. I might have gotten on my knees and said, give your life to Jesus. If I had known, Jesus knew. Jesus knew what we were facing. Jesus knew what was before us. He had no time for pleasantries. He had no time for, hey, don't worry about it. No pressure. You just make up. You just do what you want. None of that. Let the dead bury their own dead. You follow me. You don't have time. I wish I knew what happened to this man. I wish I knew where he's spending eternity. But I knew and I know that, that, that giving him platitudes and giving him comforting words was not what he needed at that moment. Kyle Eidelman, well-known pastor and preacher and, and author, writes this. The land of tomorrow is where you find divorce, addiction, and unmanageable debt. In the land of tomorrow, you'll find unfaithful spouses and prodigal children. I'll follow you, Jesus. Tomorrow, I had a young woman I was dating her when I got saved and she started going to church with me, even said the prayer, but it didn't stick. She and I broke up and she got involved with an, another young man and um, she got pregnant, uh, had an abortion. It was done very poorly. She began to hemorrhage. Her mom fortunately got her to the hospital. While she was in the hospital, the young man didn't even bother to make it into her hospital room and never came to see her. And so she began to rethink that relationship, began to reach out to me and talk to me. Well, I hadn't changed my position and I hadn't changed my, my feelings. Of, and, and I knew at that point I was in that season where God was telling me to wait. But she said this to me. She said, you know, I really admire um, the choices you made and, and the life you're living. But, and I'm sure when I'm older, then I'll follow Jesus then. She's older now. Her kids are grown. She's not following Jesus. See, we don't get to flip it on like it's a light switch. If you're here today and you believe, you know what, at some point, number one, you don't have some point. You're not guaranteed. I, I got into these discussions because my daughter was sharing about, and many of you read it on the news, about what the, the bank she works for. It's not the same branch, but a different branch. Somebody walked in last week, shot his wife, shot another teller, went out to his car, put the gun to his head, and blew his brains out. I made the statement, the man is almost certainly in hell. He guessed wrong. He thought like so many people did. You know what? I'm just sick of this world and I'll end it and I'll be done with it. No, you won't. You thought you were having a bad day? Wait till you wake up at the judgment. It's a really bad day for you. Well, you don't know, Pastor. He might have gotten saved in that last... Look, here's what I know. The Bible says no murderer has eternal life. I didn't make up those words. The Bible says that. New Testament truth, 1 John 3. Look it up for yourself. Now, I've ministered, and I've ministered for years in maximum security prisoner, in prison, and, uh, and I met plenty of former murderers, but they're no longer murderers. They're now redeemed children of God. And that's what Paul said. You were thieves, you were drunkards, you were swindlers, you were liars, you were adulterers, as some of you were. Were. But once you're redeemed, you're not that anymore. But he was. He shot and killed his wife, which made him a murderer. And he put a gun to his head and shot. That was the next act on his life on this earth and the last. I'm nobody's judge. I can hope against hope. And maybe, maybe, maybe in heaven you'll meet one person 
who between the moment the bullet was left his gun and entered his brain, came to Jesus. But you'll, sit, you'll know of billions in hell that simply lived their lives and they walked in defiance and they rejected the call of Jesus Christ and they thought, tomorrow, tomorrow, I'll get to it tomorrow. If you think, well, pastor, you know, on my last, you know, when I'm old and when I, number one, you're not guaranteed to become old. Number two, if you're on that motorcycle and you're skidding towards the light pole, do you really think you're going to say, you know, this would be a great time to just pause and reflect and receive Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior and ask him to be, the, no, you know what you'll say? Ah, and slam, and that's it. And that's the end. And Jesus knows that. There's some people in this room or watching online that don't have this, this year. You don't have this year on this earth. That's it. That's the reality of, of, of the world we live in. We disguise it. We hide ourselves from that truth. But the problem is, we're not here to make churchgoers. We're here to make disciples. We're here to make people who are ready whenever to enter into that kingdom. That if God calls you tonight, you can say hallelujah when you open your eyes in heaven. Lord Jesus, I love you and fall into his embrace and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. That's all I want for me. It's what I want for my family. And it's what I want for the people that I lead. Man, I am going to celebrate. I'm going to high five. I'm going to jump up and down when I watch you in the arms of Jesus hearing, well done, good and faithful servant. If all I did was contribute this much, I will rejoice and glorify God for eternity. Thank you. Thank you, Lord, for using me. And you can have that exact same blessing because you were a tool and a vessel in the hands of God. The last thing I see is the barrier of whatsoever. Look at verse 61. Another said, I'll follow you, Lord, but let me go back and say goodbye to my family. The same thing Elisha said. Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Let me ask you this. What are you willing, unwilling to part with? For this man, it was his family's approval. I saw a couple of days ago Topal, who starred in Fiddler on the Roof, died. And the other night, it was on, last night it was on TV, and he's singing that song, If I Were a Rich Man. And he's talking about all the great things he would have. He'd have a wife with a proper double chin, right? He'd have a big house and plenty of food and people would respect him. And he said, and trying to like make, make God get along with his plan, he said, and I could spend all day with the teachers of your law and I could ponder this all and I'd spend hours and hours just, uh, you know, he's trying to make this deal with if I were a rich man. You know, some of us could care less. You know, just give me a cabin in the woods and a fishing pole and, and, a, and a rifle to hunt with and I'm fine. See, the thing is, the question's not whether you're concerned with wealth or position or status, but you've got something. You've got something that you hold precious and Jesus knows what it is. You notice when he called Matthew that he waits till Matthew's in the middle of his day at his tax collector's table and he looks at him and he says... Follow me. The Bible says Matthew got up immediately. Left. I mean, there's money on the table. It's like leaving the cash register open. He just walks away. Jesus walks up to fishermen. You know how expensive a net was back then? You had to handcraft that thing. That thing had to be big. And it cost, in today's dollars, 
thousands and thousands of dollars to have a net like that. And Jesus looks at these fishermen and says, follow me. And the Bible says they left their nets. They didn't even say, hey, Lord, oh, that's cool, but I got this like $8,000, $10,000 net. Let me just uh, wash this off real quick, and I'm going to give this to my buddy over here, and then I'll follow. That's what these individuals were doing. I'll follow you, Lord, but... And Jesus didn't have any part of that. Jesus is relentless about forcing us to confront the areas of potential competition for the throne of our lives. With Nicodemus in John chapter 3, he comes to Jesus in the middle of the night and says, Lord, um, I know you who, and we know you're who you claim to be. First of all, if you know that I'm Messiah, if you know that I'm the Son of Man, if you know that I'm the King of kings and Lord of lords, why are you coming at night? You don't want anybody to see you. You know what Jesus said to him? It's actually, you don't catch this in English, but it's actually a pretty serious diss. He says, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. We, we miss this. What this man just said is, I know this is who you are. And Jesus said, no, you don't. Because until you're born again, you don't know anything. You're not able to perceive things from a spiritual dimension. You don't have the teaching of the Spirit of God in your life. You're guessing, and you may have guessed right, but you don't know what you think you know. That's why that man gets into that conversation. But Lord, I mean, I can't go back and be, you know, in my mother's womb and, and be born again. You know, he's trying to, he's just trying to deflect. He's trying to move the subject matter off of his own personal condition and onto a theological kind of debate and, and, and discussion. See, often things, oftentimes things in our lives that nobody else would question, like our, our family, our spouses, our work, where if somebody challenged us on it, hey, man, I could come up with a great spiritual-sounding response. But the thing is, you can't fool Jesus. He knows what's on the throne of your life. And he's going to call you and he's going to ask you, are you willing to get rid of that which you are defined by? For me, it was my music. Are you willing to lay down this career? Are you willing to walk away? My old band had just signed a $6 million deal on my songwriting. I had one of the, the, the same person that got them their record deal promoting me to MCA. And you know what I had to tell her? I'm walking away from this. Fifteen years later, the same woman who's now in, based in Nashville and, and working with Toby Keith and the Survivor TV series and the Country Music Awards reaches out to me and says, I want to set up meetings for you in Nashville with some very important people. And I went to those meetings and I walked away saying the same thing. My calling and my election are sure. I know what God's called me to do. I know what he's asking of me. And as much as I would love to do this, and the thing is, I didn't realize this in my early 20s. But man, I knew this in my late 30s. If I say no now, I'm really saying no. See, because you all know when you're 22 how you're going to be 22 forever. You know what I'm talking about? You get around 40 and you realize, I'm not going to be 22 forever. I'm not going to be 35 forever. I'm not going to be 45 forever. And you realize that life goes by really fast. And, and you know what? We love, we love playing this game. We were just, my daughter uh, Jennifer and I were, because we were listening to Stephen Curtis Chapman's song. I'm like, when did this come out? And she looks it up on her phone, of course, because kids do that. They're smart like that. Um, oh, it came out last year, right? I was just going to guess and ask somebody, right? Because I'm old and that's what we do. Do you know when this, out, this song came out? Go up on the computer and look it up and see when the copyright is. No, here, Dad, here's what it is. Oh, thank you, right? It was last year and I was like, wow, 
His voice sounded great. I met Stephen Curtis Chapman when he was in his early 20s. I was working for a Christian promotion company and we were doing his concert and we were setting up at the church and that's what we did. We worked security and set up product tables and worked with their load-in team and everything else. And he comes walking into this church and, uh, and it's probably about 3 o'clock in the afternoon and he's got a surfer, you know, long sleeve surfing shirt on and board shorts and he had his hair down to here and, and they told him, hey, uh, young man, yeah, you need to leave. The show's not till 7 o'clock. And he's like, I am the show. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> but he looked like a kid. He doesn't anymore. Because that's what happens in life. And Jesus is looking at us in all of our delusions, in all of our dodges, in all of our deflections, and he cuts right through the midst of it. And he says, are you willing to go wherever I call you? Are you willing to follow me right now, not down the road, but right now? And are you willing to do whatever I ask you to do? Let me, let me share with you a couple of passages here. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, 37, 38. What, when you sow, you don't plant the body that will be, but a seed, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body just as he is determined into each kind of seed it gives his own body. In other words, if you'd never seen an apple tree and somebody showed you an apple seed, you'd have no idea what the tree was going to look like. You'd have no idea if this was going to be a vegetable, a fruit, or anything else. You're just seeing a seed. When you, if somebody handed you an orange seed and you'd never seen an orange tree, exactly the same. And that's what God is saying. That what we offer God now is just the raw material of what he's going to create with our lives and, 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 in, and in who we are in eternity. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, 51. I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound. The dead will be raised imperishable, meaning not what they are right now. And we will be changed. And the process of discipleship is simply yielding and trusting God and saying, God... You're going to ask me for things I don't want to do. You're going to ask me to go places and love people. And, and I don't want to do this in my flesh. But 2 Chronicles 16, 9 says, The eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth. You know, it's funny because the Bible says that Satan prowls about the earth seeking whom he may, what, devour. The Bible says the Lord's eyes range throughout the earth to strengthen the hearts of those who are fully committed to him. Let me ask you this. Do you have a wherever fence set up between you and, and Jesus? I'll follow you, Jesus, but I won't follow you past here. Do you have a whenever wall? Lord, you know, I mean, I'm in church, right? I'm my, making my wife happy or making my husband happy or, or making mom and dad happy. And, and probably down the road, I'll go all in. Do you have a whatsoever barrier? Well, Lord, I'll do this. But don't ask me to do that. I've had people say things like this to me. Pastor, you don't know what I've been through. You don't know what my dad did to me. You don't know what happened to me here. Don't ask me to forgive them. I'm not. But God says this. If you do not forgive, you cannot be forgiven. And it's not God being mean, saying, if you don't do this, I won't do this for you. It's a very simple truth. If you don't release that which blocks me coming into your life, you're not going to receive the benefits of grace in your life. That bitterness, that unforgiveness is simply going to block. The guys did a, fixed the water heater the other day and I went up to, this, to the, um, the sinks 
and I noticed that a couple of them didn't work at all. And it needed a special tool, so I went down to the Home Depot or Lowe's or whatever, and I got this special tool that takes the screen off, and I pulled the screen, and there was literally like that much sediment, because all the sediment that had settled to the bottom of the tank, as soon as they turned it on, and it went into the sinks, and there was like that much blocking it. You know what? There was plenty of water flow. There was nothing wrong with the water at all. But there was an obstruction that prevented the water from flowing. And that's what Jesus is saying. That saying no to him and rejecting his call and, and willful disobedience, all it does is block what God wants to do in your life. So let me ask you this, and we're going we're gonna to close in prayer. Are you afraid of going to Jesus and directly asking him what he wants from you out of fear he might actually respond? Because, guys, this stuff wouldn't be in Scripture if it wasn't something that almost all of us struggle with. Where is the place in your life that you find it most difficult to follow Jesus? What do you find next to impossible? That, well, Jesus, you know, don't ask for my music. I had a young man who said that. I'm not going to stop listening to this music. God, I'm not going to, I mean, I'll, I'll be generous and I'll give. But don't ask me to sell everything and give to the poor. Lord, I've worked hard to get to this position. And I'll serve you and I'll use this platform for your glory. But don't ask for me to give it up. And we say those things because we know that's exactly where our identity lies and exactly what Jesus needs to replace. Understand, Jesus wasn't trying to talk these people out of following him. It may seem like that at first glance. He was calling them to look at something before they started out that they were going to have to deal with somewhere along the path. If you've ever taken a long car trip, you know there comes a point of no return, right? If you're five minutes out the door, oh, I forgot my, my AirPods. No problem, we'll turn around and go back. But there comes a point where, too late, you just have to deal with it. Right? I don't have any underwear. We'll buy some. We're not going to. Last year, we were going to go on a, on a family vacation. We are going to go on a cruise. And um, we get to our, uh, the hotel. We're 12 hours outside of Illinois. We're in Florida. And guess what we found? We don't have our passports. We can't get on the ship. Now, my wife could at that point drive me to the airport. I could try to get a flight to St. Louis and try to, you know, Uber into town, get it, fly back. Um, I could drop my wife off and rent or rent a car for her to drive the rest of the way down to our family and then try to drive back and, you know, get no sleep. We fortunately had a very good friend of ours who said, I'll overnight them to your, you know, your brother's house and, and, and we were able to get them. But there came a point where... And you, you, you just, you're kind of stuck. You kind of own this situation. And here's the thing. It's okay. It's one thing if it's some socks or some toothbrushes or something like that. No big deal. But when it was a passport, it was a big deal. It was a big deal. And there's things in our lives that we can kind of fudge and, and, and we can kind of do, well, you know, if I don't do this, like I said, God didn't tell me what shirt to wear and God didn't tell me what shoes to wear this morning and there's certain things. But there's other decisions that are absolutely critical. The devil does not want you making the distinction. But where you go for lunch today pales in comparison to where you spend eternity. But we probably spend more time thinking about lunch 
than we do about eternity. We think about retirement, which is a few years, more than we think about where we're going to spend forever. Let me ask you to stand together right now. We're going to pray. I want to ask you to do this as this praise team ministers. Is there anything off limits to Jesus today in your life? Only you can answer that question. What if following Jesus led to the Middle East? Would you follow him there? What if he led you to being poor? What if following meant your family or closest friends rejected you? Or that it meant walking away from your goals and ambitions and plans for life, marriage, family, career? You can't skate past that and pretend it's an insignificant decision because eternity hinges on saying yes to Jesus. Not compartmentalizing and say, Jesus, I will just simply do, you know, I'll do the church thing and I'll worship you. Jesus saves those he is Lord over. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray right now for everybody in this place, everybody online, who your spirit is ministering to, who you're convicting, who you're challenging. Lord God Almighty, you are the only one with the greatness and sovereignty to challenge us like that. If another human being challenged me the way Jesus challenged these people, I would have been terribly and ridiculously offended. But Lord, you are sovereign. You are God. And you see our future. So Father, as we worship, I pray that your spirit speak to us with absolute clarity. Is there anything that I'm refusing to lay down? Is there anything that I am refusing to take up? Is there any place I am refusing to go? Is there anyone I'm refusing to love? Is there anyone I'm refusing to forgive? If there's any place in my life, Lord, that I'm saying no to you, stir up those waters and bring them to the surface, Lord, so that I can lay them at your feet. Lord, this altar is open. Cause your spirit to work. Church, right now, if, you, if the Spirit of God is ministering in any way, if He's challenging you, calling you, elevating you, rebuking you, lay that at His feet and tell Him, God, I'm not going to leave this place carrying this anymore. I'm going to say yes to you. In Jesus' name, amen.